As usual, I like to talk about gameplay first. One of the questions I got in the middle of this run was, is this game, do, does this game have superior gameplay to Ma Mass Effect 1? Wow. <laughs> to Halo 1. And the answer was, uh, see, here's the thing. I, I, I stumbled there because the comparisons between Mass Effect 1 and Mass Effect 2 and Halo 1 and Halo 2 are fairly apt, I think. Because, Mass Effect 2, whether it has better or worse gameplay, is kind of a matter of preference, because what really matters is that Mass Effect 2 has different gameplay, and that is exactly how I feel with Halo 2. I feel like they actually sat down and said, okay, let's throw all this out the window and start over again. Certain aspects remain the same, don't mistake me, but the level design is completely different. The way they approach their physics engine is completely different. The way they approach their combat design and encounter design is completely different. Right? It's, it's a whole new system. There are very few things that are the same. I'd say the overall AI structure and uh, gun design. I would say those are the only two things that are really the same. Everything else has simply been changed. Whether that's better or not is up to you. I will say for the final score, even though both Halo 1 and Halo 2 got a net plus 3 to gameplay, it's worth noting that Halo 1 got less positives and negatives, whereas Halo 2 got more positives and negatives, and I stand by that. Uh, that it was admittedly made a little bit worse by the fact that Halo 2 crashed several times during this game. Hard crash. I had to end task a few times. So that's fun. But you're here to talk about specifics of gameplay. What did they change? How did they change it? Well, I already mentioned how guns are mostly the same, so I don't have much to say there. Same with the AI. But encounter design. Let's actually talk about enemies. Uh, early on, there's a map where... Uh, let's... doesn't matter. They They have... Uh, several new enemy types in this game. The, I don't know any of their names, please forgive me, but we've got the Flyers, right? And then we've got... Uh, the Flyers would usually go alongside the Sniper people, and usually they'd have Grunts backing them up, right? Cool. The significance of that, though, is that we've got the Snipers who are willing to pick you off as soon as you actually poke your head out. We've got the Flyers who are constantly buzzing around trying to encourage you to move since they can actually outflank you and get behind you and around you. And we've got the Grunts who are just kind of peppering you. They're the dots here, as someone in the comment section of the Halo 1 thing first mentioned. They're, they serve the same equivalent as those uh, the little dinky things, whose names I don't remember, in of the Flood, you know, the little uh, tentacle dudes, the low-level enemies whose purpose it is to basically harass you and drain your shields. That's the Grunt's purpose. All three of these enemies in combination make for good encounter design. Now, I hate to constantly reference Doom when it comes to these, but this is one of the things that is so special about most of id's first-person shooter games. The fact that they actually put a lot of thought and effort into which enemies combine with which others in which areas. That's encounter design in a nutshell right there. They do good stuff with that here. Also, most of the new enemies are reasonably well designed, too. I mentioned the, the flying bug guys just now. They're flying, right? They don't. They have weapons that aren't super accurate, and they won't hit you all that often, and they don't do all that much damage, but they will harass you. They will move very rapidly. So they are enemies that are basically skirmishers, right? Here's the cool part about that. In addition to the fact that they will do set patterns in their movement so you can kind of predict and shoot ahead in order to hit them, they will also periodically pause, effectively invalidating their own advantages in order to give you a moment to catch your breath and catch up on them. Most of the enemies, especially the new ones in this game, are all designed with that in mind, with one notable exception, the Brutes. Now, I debated this for a while, and I finally decided not to give a negative to game design for the Brutes, but I was very seriously considering it, because the Brutes are not designed. That's the problem. Every other enemy in this game has design built into them. We actually talked about this semi-recently. 
uh, I don't remember which game it was. It was several games ago where we were talking about how it just felt like there was an L. Oh, Resident Evil 3 Remake, that was it. Where there was just an absence of design in the levels. It's the same thing with the grunts. They have health, and when someone else is damaged, they will charge you and melee attack constantly. That's kind of it. There's not really any other significance there. We could talk about how they don't coordinate, except I'm not sure that's actually true. We could talk about how they don't attack in a group, except I never observed that to be true. We could talk about how they tend to be backed up with people like the shield guys, for example. Except, again, most of the encounters with brutes aren't really designed all that well to take advantage of the brute's nature. In fact, probably the more interesting encounters that include brutes were the ones where the brutes weren't actually fighting you. It was during the Civil War sections on the... I can't remember the name of the ship. Uh, high Charity, on the High Charity. You know? Now, that's fine, but that's not good design, and I feel that that's one of the places they dropped the, dropped the ball, so to speak. There were also several as aspects of, weirdly enough, padding for such a short game. Uh, I think we encountered a grand total of three elevator sequences, two of which were as the Arbiter. <sighs> sure. We also had problems with the checkpointing. I know I actually already complained about the checkpointing. I'm not going to repeat all my thoughts on it since it is apparently the exact same checkpoint system. However, there is one addendum thought that is that is distinct to Halo 2, and that's the fact that they have a rec uh, an overlap design problem. And I'm going to try and explain this. I'm going to fail at this. Sometimes games will do a thing where they introduce a mechanic or a concept or whatever, and well, it's bad, right? It causes issues, it lowers the enjoyment of the game, the very definition of a gameplay negative. But what tends to happen sometimes is that decision, that game design decision, overlaps with another game design decision. And so this decision over here isn't actually bad in and of itself, but because of the fact that this is happening, now it is made bad. A perfect example of this is the durability problem over on Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Because the durability problem is its own problem, and I do personally think it is a bad mechanic. However, the fact that it overlaps with so many other aspects of the gameplay design of Breath of the Wild is why I think it is such a bad mechanic. Because of its implementation and that overlap. Because it made other mechanics worse. Now, I don't want to talk about Breath of the Wild here. But the checkpointing system. So they got rid of health, right? Okay, that's cool. That's not a big deal. I mean, yes, I know there actually is health. But effectively, you have your shields, and then you have, like, a very, very small amount of health afterwards, and that's it. Okay, cool. I'm with that. Um, the shields also seem to take more damage. That just seems to be my impression. Also, uh, the shields, they say they regenerate faster. I'm not sure I believe that. I think the regeneration speed is faster, not the regeneration time, a.k.a. the cooldown, the amount of time you have to not be shot for them to regenerate. Now, that's not a bad thing, except when you add the checkpoint problem on top of it. How about the encounter design? I mentioned that earlier. Where we have several areas where there's certain enemies which are designed to be, you know, raw. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Uh, let's say you get checkpointed in the middle of one of those encounters, and now you suddenly are reduced in the type of weapons, ammo, and general tools that you as a player have in your arsenal in order to deal with that encounter because you've been checkpointed in the middle of the encounter rather than outside of the encounter where you can then walk in. Now, yes, I know you can die rapid fire to rewind, but do you see what I mean by this? How the checkpoint can then overlap with other problems, and with other, excuse me, with other game designs causing problems? It was the biggest source of aggravation for me in the run by a huge margin. And I, I kept, I, I felt stupid because I kept banging on about it during the actual run because there just kept being instances where it just kept making the game worse. <sighs> However... 
there were there were there, there's still good design here. In fact, as I mentioned, the actual mission design is substantially better. The early mission where you're going through Earth, the Earth City, the one that gets blasted by someone doing a slip drive in Earth Atmo. Yeah, that's, uh, we'll come back to that one later, by the way. That is a, a legitimately good mission. A large variety of different encounters, allies who assist you throughout it. There's good banter. There's good set piecing. Most of the actual terrain is designed to actually give you choices and options when it comes to the combat. You, uh, the, the flow of the whole sequence is very good. Just, it was just good stuff, right? Also, later on, there's the mission Gravemind, which I actually rather enjoyed, except for the arena section. I actually gave a positive and a negative to the Gravemind mission. But the whole intro part, going to the prison cell, breaking people out, again, good use of terrain, the fact that you can actually, you know, rescue the Marines who would then assist you, and the fact that the Civil War is going on in the background while this is happening, and a huge variety of different options with regards to the arsenal you can use going through the level. All of that's good design stuff, right? So the mission design is noticeably a bit better in the first game, and it feels like they really sat down and polished said mission design substantially over the previous game. I could talk more about the gameplay elements, but honestly, this game is far more of a story-focused game than the first game, which is funny because, you know, Bungie. Let's, uh, let me, let me talk about Myth one more time really quick. I want to say this here. Actually, I want to say something else first. The first thing I want to say is that while I do know several aspects of the greater lore of the setting, thanks to Encyclopedia and Friends, as I mentioned earlier, the fact is there's still several holes I have, uh, mostly with regarding specifics as far as individuals, cultures, etc. And I don't know the events of the games coming up. I have no idea where we're going plot-wise at this point, since most of the stuff I know hasn't even been revealed yet, right? So having said all of that... I, I'm going to have a lot of speculation going forwards. The game ends on a cliffhanger, right? I know exactly what that feels like. Do you mind if I share a story? I was watching Pirates of the Caribbean 2 in the theater with my girlfriend at the time. Now, I'm not going to spoil that movie, because, duh. But all I'm going to say is that I was very into the movie. The narrative was completely drawing me in in the, final, the finale, the climax. And I was just, oh my god. And as I'm watching the final bit, I had lost track of time and didn't realize that we were at the final bit of the movie. Now, that's important to keep in mind, because I didn't realize the movie was about to end. If I had, I probably would have seen this coming. Now, for those of you not aware, Parts of the Caribbean 2 ends on a cliffhanger. And I actually physically stood up in the audience like, What? Way too loudly, because I wasn't keeping control of my volume. You know, girlfriend's like, Sit down, Lore. Because she called me Lore. And... I know exactly what that feels like, to to have a to-be-continued and be like, okay. And I think, and the reason I use that exact example is because that I didn't realize we were at the end feel is the same feel I get with Halo 2. It feels like there should be a final mission right after the final mission, and there is not. Now I know they were rushed, and there were three missions that were cut, blah, blah, blah. But my point is, I can absolutely feel what it would feel like in the moment, back in 2004, I think, when this came out, when people were just like, what? Because, to be continued. Thankfully, unlike some games, this one actually was continued. I want to compare this to another game really quick. Half-Life 2. Now, I've compared the first game to Half-Life 1 a lot, and I will try not to compare this one to Half-Life 2 quite as much. But it's interesting how both games kind of drifted in the same direction, didn't they? Far more story-focused, far more cutscene-focused, actual development of real characters and characterization, rather than just, you know, caricatures, or people who, in some cases, didn't even have names, who were just kind of there in the background. And a main character who, 
admittedly is still a non-character and it mostly serves as a vehicle for the player in order to enjoy the story and narrative around them. Yeah. Also a complete shift when it comes to the engine and the gameplay design. Just You can see the progression path. Again, not a dismissive thing. Although Half-Life 2 still hasn't been continued, whereas this one has. So, point Halo. Anyways. <clears throat> I also want to compare this to Myth really quick one more time. For those of you who haven't played the Myth series, Myth 2 kind of ended on a cliffhanger in its own right. Not not in the same way. More of a, there should be more. And of course, there wasn't, and I kind of already discussed the reasons why in my previous video. But I wanted to mention that, because the other big comparison there, other than the To Be Continued, is it really felt like they wanted to show where it was going. And I got the same vibe from Halo 2. This is especially interesting because both settings are doomed. Now, I'm not going to spoil Myth. But for those of you familiar with the fran that, that franchise, it's only three games, familiar with that franchise in that setting, that setting is pretty doomed. I actually legitimately am not sure how they could ever restore or fix that setting from its doomed status. Sound familiar? Now, I know there's a Halo 3 and a Halo 3 Odds and Halo 3 Reach and Halo 4 and Halo 5 and Halo Infinite and Halo Wars and Halo Wars 2, but... I don't, uh, from what we have seen so far with the Covenant and their galactic reach and their civil war and the Flood who now have access to the entirety of High Charity, which is billions of lives, that's a whole lot of biomass they can use now. I'm not sure how this is a fixable scenario. It'll be interesting to see what they do going forward. I also want to comment on, I just mentioned the characters. I do enjoy and appreciate the fact that the characters are characters. The fact that we actually have characterization. Cortana is still mostly a secondary voice, you know, mission control thing, and the Master Chief is still just a vehicle for the player, but Johnson and I forgot everyone else's names, uh, Johnson, Arbiter, Artros, Artos? Truth, Regret, Mercy. All of them actually have development characterization. Uh, excuse me. All of them have characterization. Some of them have development character growth throughout the course of the game. Uh, Artress being the good example of that one, where he actually goes from being the rival, I don't really care about you, to I've got your back no matter what. It's a nice little progression path there, and we see a little bit of that with the Arbiter himself as he kind of pulls out of his own problems. There's some good stuff here is what I'm trying to say, and it was nice to see this. I don't have much to say about the individual since we're still ongoing, but I want to mention a couple of specifics that really jumped out at me. First of all, Tartarus, or Tartarus, or however you want to say that, and the Brutes. Question. Do you think they're stupid, ambitious, or both? Now, I asked this on stream, so feel free to not answer if you already answered there. But if you didn't watch the stream, feel free to answer, because I'm actually curious of your questions. Now, let me explain what I mean by that really quick, though. So, um, I made a reference to them being the new Praetorians, the Emperor's Guards. What it feels like happening here is the Brutes have been chafing under the elites for a long time and have been wanting to prove themselves superior to the elites. We are the actual followers of the path. We are the ones who are going to make the journey happen. We are the chosen servants of the prophets, not you. And that's the vibe I got from the grunts, especially Tartarus himself. Tartarus, excuse me. It makes me wonder if they are just so stupid as to not recognize how dumb this move is, or if they only look at it as a good thing. Like, we have been elevated, because we see there's a very strict caste system, which is species-based within the, within the Covenant, and that's something that's developed within this very game. You know, the Grunts, the Unghoi, I actually wrote down their name right there, the Unghoi. Their story just, oh my gosh. 
the, 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 the destruction of their planet because of a slight infight which led to what could have been argued to be a rebellion, leading to the annihilation of most of their race percentage-wise is just horrific. But we have this caste system, very layered, very species-based, elevating one... It's a, it's a classic approach, right? You make sure that the castes are more interested in fighting against each other, so they're less interested in fighting against you. This also leads very beautifully and neatly into the entire role of the Arbiter. Warrior kings, as they used to be. A very old concept within real-life history, since that goes back into the BC era. But here we have the Arbiters, and we're like, hmm, how can we turn this great and venerated title into a tool that we can use? I've got an idea. Now, naturally, this didn't seem planned, more like an opportunistic perspective, since the prophets themselves don't really strike me as people who are very smart. They feel like people who had an edge and who use that to their advantage. Forerunner tech, excuse me. I don't know if that's true, by the way. A lot of what I'm about to say is speculation. As I mentioned earlier, I'm not aware of the specifics. I am mostly speculating. Some of these things were confirmed by viewers in chat as I was going, so it turns out I, my analysis is perfectly on point, but let's move on. The idea of the Arbit uh, the prophets using those tools to try and maintain control. So why don't we turn it into a mark of shame? That's brilliant. That's beautiful in how horrific it is. The idea of... I mean, it's, it's hard to even use a real-life example of that, because I'm not sure we have much that is a real-life equivalent of that idea. I suppose if we were to go back to ancient Egypt, imagine if someone took over Egypt. Imagine if, you know, Alexander, and when he's stomping through there, or the Persians, maybe, or whoever else, the Ottomans did this too. Imagine if someone stomps over there and turns... They're still pharaohs. They're still pharaohs. But now pharaoh means you have done something wrong, and you now need to, through service, earn back your life. Earn back the right of your species to exist. Cute. Speaking of horrific tools the prophets use, the prophets, see, the, the big three, still seem to be insistent on grabbing the halos and using them. The more they do that, the more I suspect their motives, because they have to know how these things work. If nothing else, it is shown that uh, Truth specifically has access to our good boy, Guilty Boy. And Guilty Boy would have told Truth the actual truth which means that they should know what the halo rings are for. So why are they still trying to activate them? Well, I have some theories there. I have a feeling this will be answered later, so feel free to not answer me now. But my theory now has to do with another tool in their arsenal. They've already been using Forerunner Tech, right? Imagine if they could key it to only wipe out one specific race. Wouldn't that just be the perfect anti-rebellion tool, the ultimate nuclear option? You will fall in line and do what we say. Otherwise, I will do a crappy snap. Oh, come on. Let's do the left. Left hand's the annihilating one, anyways. Hey! There we go. Of course, I knew that was going to happen. And all of a sudden, your species is gone. We already see that they're more than willing to wipe out races and do whatever it needs to be with an absolute disregard for morality on any level. The idea of them holding that ultimate nuke over people's heads, you will fall into line or your entire race will be wiped out, is something I can absolutely see they, them doing. And is so many levels of messed up, I feel like I'm failing at explaining how messed up that is because that is wrong on every fundamental level. Even from a practical concern, that is stupid. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like the hostage scenario 
the mathematical equation of the hostage scenario cranked up to seven trillion, you know? Anyways. But I was talking about the, the profits, wasn't I? Now, I theorized about this. This is one of the things that was confirmed for me while I was on chat. I was talking about the Klingons when it came to the prophets. But another good race to compare those two is actually the uh, Onuri. Uh, or Onurians, excuse me, Onurians. And you're probably thinking, who the heck are those? Don't worry about it. Nobody knows who they are. They're from my setting. They have a thing where the only thing that counts is what is publicly known. So, in other words, if you were a backbiting, mischievous, scheming bastard, but you were never seen doing it, and you're never caught doing it, then the face you present to the public is the only one that exists. And that's the, the nature of how their culture is structured. This is very much the vibe I got from the prophets, and it turns out I was right, that they, they present a face, and that face is the only one that matters. But because they take it a step further than the Anurians, because in the Anurians' case you have to still maintain the facade. If you get caught, if, you, if you're walking around calling yourself benevolence and someone catches you stealing from a, from a pauper on the, the road, your name is gone. Your name is mud. Because now, what is seen is what is true. Make sense? But with the prophets, they don't even have to maintain it. They don't bother. Truth lies constantly. I'm not sure he said anything truthful in the entire game. Mercy is a vengeful, bitter husk who is raging and ranting, and every single line he has is said in a similar tone like this. <laughs> right? Regret is one of the most uh, uh, hu hubritical. He has the most hubris and the most pride and arrogance of the trio. I mean, he's the one who went to Earth early, right? To activate the device that they apparently didn't have the tools necessary to activate. You know, the thing that happens at the end of this thing. And he's also the one who almost directly causes several downfalls because of the fact that he refused to listen. Even when he is captured by the grave mind, he is still spouting about how he is the one on top. So these people, they remind me of that frickin' executive from Outer Worlds, the guy who was so deluded and so self-sure of himself that he felt that he could walk up to someone who had a gun to his head and say, I order you to go into those jail cells and wait for execution, because he thought he could get away with it. Now the difference is the prophets have been getting away with this. Or have they? This game doesn't say this outright, but I get the very strong vibe, and this is why I came up with my earlier theory about the, the ultimate nuclear deterrent idea, the, the will wipe out your species hostage situation. I get the vibe that rebellions are something they, they deal with commonly. That, like, that's the norm. Which would make sense. Well, it was, sorry about that. Most, uh, most actual ancient societies, which are, you know, evil empires, tended to have that exact same problem. Seriously, how many times have you read a history book or listened to a history sermon or essay or whatever where they've talked about, and then this king came into power, and then they went around putting out rebellions, and then they went and did other work. And it's usually just a, a little footnote, and then they went and took out rebellions. It was so common. I get that same vibe here. Funnily enough, a very common historical trick when you were facing a nonstop threat to your power from within was to create an artificial power from without, either directly or inferred. In other words, to go to war with another poor person. Oh, yes, we must all be united against the blah. It's even better if it's a holy war, because then, oh, oh, oh well, now, now this is a divine retribution against the humans. I mean, you see it? You see the direction I'm thinking? 
this whole progression i'm sorry i'm sorry for gushing the covenant are fascinating horrific but fascinating the way they're presented the elites you, you feel the idea that even though the elites are loyal they're still only barely holding on to that particular reign one of the things i loved best about the civil war is that so many of the races so many of the castes automatically chose sides the hunters siding with the elites along with the grunts because the grunts who survived the purge that was ordered by the prophets were uplifted by the elite so naturally there's that bond there or how about the uh the brutes whose only at real allies is this is the the sniper guys who i can't remember their name please forgive me the shield guys the, uh, you know it's just they just kind of automatically turned into sides and started beating the crap out of each other. Beautiful stuff, beautiful stuff. And of course, that is how the humans win against the Covenant. You may be wondering why I'm saying that. It's because humanity had no choice, no, no, no chance, no hope against defeating the Covenant. They were simply overwhelmed and outmatched and out everything. That's why they were willing to take a random chance on a random thing that might be a super weapon in the first game. Here, well, we see the method by which they they accomplish it. And the funny thing is, they didn't do it. The Covenant kind of tore itself apart uh, pretty much on its own. Nice touch, guys. I also mentioned the Grave Mind in the middle of that one. First of all, I love the Grave Mind. But I want to share a thought. Now, this is something that nobody confirmed, thankfully. So this is still the realm of theory. The Grave Mind pulls Master Chief and the Arbiter and talks to them. Why? And that just stuck with me. Why? Oh, sure, the, the Grave Mind wants to live. You know, he wants the Halo Ring to not be fired. Sure, that makes a degree of sense. But that doesn't explain most of its actions and why it was acting the way it was and why it's suddenly voiced by the clones from the Clone Wars. What, what, what explains all these things to me, though, because we see it has no problem assimilating people and still using them and talking with them, as it did with uh, regret, who is just hilarious in that scene. And of course, um, the other guy, I didn't write down his name, uh, Penitent. Penitent was the other one. But, question, why does it bother? Well, you could say it's because of its intelligent life form, and therefore it doesn't necessarily need to win, but I, I, I have a theory there, and I think the Grave Mind was being spiteful. Hear me out for a second. There's winning, which is when you defeat the enemy. But, well, let me actually, let me step that back a moment. Everyone defines winning differently. It's, it's, the, it's the definition of victory. I've actually talked about this several times. If Some people will walk into fiction and say, well, why don't they just kill them? Well, it's because killing them is not the goal. That's not the, that's not the finishing line. For uh, many villains, the finishing line is not the obvious one. That's, that's exactly my point here. I think the Grave Mind's finishing line, I think the victory, I think the goal here was not simply to assimilate and consume and kill. They needed to know. They need to then know that they are wrong. They need to know why they are wrong. They need to understand, comprehend, and preferably accept that they are wrong. There's this undercurrent of spite underneath the tone of the Grave Mind as he is spitting his beautifully beautifully written dialogue at uh, at the arbiter and at master chief you will understand this and so it ends up unifying and i love this the flood the covenant and the humans via these three individuals unify against the covenant as a whole against the prophets ain't that cute <laughs> you know you screwed up when you managed to get that power trio going against you 
But I got that very strong vibe from that. And again, I don't actually know if I'm true or not. It, it, it could be just the fact that the Grave Mind was simply interested in continuing to exist, and so it decided to do what Flood can do, because Flood is an intelligent force. It's not like the Necromorphs, for the most part, which just kind of go and do. This is something that can operate. So, okay, sure. I'm probably wrong. Who knows? But I suppose this is as good a time as any to talk about the Arbiter and how Keith David is always amazing. Unfortunately, I don't have too much additional to say about the Arbiter here, except that he's weirdly engaging of a character for a genocidal madman yawn attack. <laughs> what is it with fiction in doing this? It could just be down to Keith David. I brought up Nathan or not Nathaniel Howe, excuse me, Rendon Howe during this run. A character who is a despicably disgusting human being who is only salvaged by being voiced by Tim Curry. I wonder if there's a similar thing here. Presentation does matter when it comes to characterization. But at the same time, I look at the Arbiter and I see someone who is wrong. But I'm not sure if he would be wrong if he was in different circumstances. And that's the thing that makes me question. There's the possibility there that if he was not born into the horrifically corrupt society that is the Covenant, if he would be a decent person, a good person, or a bad person innately. At the very least, though, I think he would be neutral leaning towards lawful. Lawful, neutral, if you will, more than anything else. If I had to put him on the alignment chart. Someone who does have his own structure, his operations, code, his ideas of how things should be, but doesn't really seem to care one way or another whether things are good or bad. It doesn't really matter to him. He is simply doing. And, of course, his overall emphasis on duty certainly seems to emphasize that. I said the word emphasis twice in a row because I am very stupid. Johnson's awesome. Don't have anything else to add there. The meme master. Very quotable. A lot of good quotes in this one. Like I said, the dialogue pops. It's one of the reasons the terminals kind of stood out for me, because they were so much worse overall. <sighs> have I talked about everything I want to? I'm looking at my notes here. The Enforced Empire, the Deception of the Rings, the cutscenes. The cutscenes! Oh my god, the cutscenes are so good! The cutscenes are so good in this game! There's... Oh, oh my god, the lighting and the cinematography and the camera and the editing, it's just, it's, it's, it's pops, it's amazing. I cannot gush enough about how well designed the cutscenes are in this game. It is astonishingly good. But there's one other thing I have to gush about, and I wrote down a couple of examples. Because one of the things that the cutscenes did that was so awesome was tiny little details that don't really matter. I've talked about this before. Those little details, they add flavor. They're what really makes something great for me. And there were a lot of those in this game. When uh, Master Chief was in the thing and Johnson's running by and Johnson just goes, Kong, Kong, and Master Chief just goes, Kong, it's in the middle of someone else's dialogue. It's just a quick passing thing. It lasts about a second. But it's that, just that quick, you know, through the metal bro fist, basically, the, the sign, countersign thing. Uh, there was the bit where Truth... Uh, not not truth, excuse me, uh, regret, was being held by the by the grave mind. And grave mind's talking and withdraws uh, regret. And as regret is being withdrawn, you just hear this, ah! and it just gets kind of very organic-soundingly strangled off at the last minute there, which implies all sorts of wonderful things. The grunts talking to each other. There's this bit early on where the captain, uh, Ertras, is talking, and he's like, ah! You know, I am talking and giving this great speech because the dialogue is well-written. And in the foreground, two of the grunts are like, hey, and they just kind of start talking to each other. But my personal favorite one, my personal favorite little nuance, my little bit of flavoring on the cutscenes, is the big cutscene where... Well, okay, it's it's the best cutscene in the entire game. It's the one where they're like, we, nothing can stop us from activating this, and then Master Chief comes out of the portal. That, that, I lost. 
I completely lost it. I don't know if that's going in the highlight reel or not, because I don't design those right now, but that was a really good scene. But immediately leading up to that scene, there's this bit where the camera is going forward on a long walkway. And here's the pedestal over here where they're actually talking. So the camera's kind of coming up here, up the walkway. And there's several grunts and elites. And there are brutes blocking the way. And up here we have the brutes, a couple of grunts, and the prophets talking, right? What is so well done about this scene? Well, everything. But to get down to the nuance thing, there's this very short bit where one of the elites tries to shove their way forward. They are pushed back by the brute, and immediately, without even thinking about it, one of the grunts leaps up to try and defend the elite, and is then smacked down for it. Now, you probably noticed the grunt being smacked down, because it's the more obvious thing. It's right, it's, it's like right here on the camera. But the fact that the grunt was inspired to do that by the elite trying to push forward, love that little stuff. Love it. I enjoyed Halo 2. I enjoyed it more than one. I am very curious what 3 is going to be like. Of course, for those of you watching this when this comes out, we will be playing 3 Monday, so I hope to see you guys there.